Let's get up from our seats to receive our scripture reading for today. Our scripture reading comes from Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Uh, please pay a careful attention. This is God's word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now I invite Pastor John to deliver God's word to us today. Good afternoon, everybody. Good to see all of you. Uh, can we turn to our neighbors and say one nice thing to one another? a lot of silence. <laughs> One nice thing. For the remaining month of July, we're going to start a series called Lost and Found. Lost and Found. And I find that this title is a little bit more appropriate because there is, an, in essence, what, this is exactly what sin does to us. It makes us lost in sin. And of course, uh, the scriptures teach us, though, even though we might feel lost, all sin leads somewhere. And that's death. And tragically, all of us have sin within our hearts, including myself, all the people that you love. Sin is the best explanation for why our world is in the state that it's in. I mean, think about it. Is the world so corrupt because of a lack of education? That can't be true. United States, there's a lot of educated people, and yet there's so much injustice. And we're not just the only educated country in the world. There's so many other nations with so much education. That can't just be this problem that, oh, we're not educated and therefore, you know, we're falling into pieces. So then what makes us fall into pieces? Well, the scriptures gives us a great explanation. 
and he calls it sin. Sin is us at the center of the universe, where it's all about me, myself, and I. We can't think about anybody else. We just think about ourselves. And at the global level, if we're filled, uh, overpopulating the world with self-centered people, uh, corruption is bound to happen. And so what is our hope in this life? Well, the scriptures again teach us that hope does not come within us. It doesn't come from your friends. It doesn't come from your teachers. It comes from God and God alone. And I think, um, you know, if you've been church for a long time, if you have been a Christian for a long time, uh, it's interesting that sometimes our joy in the Lord doesn't increase. Oftentimes our joy in the Lord decreases and we kind of grow stale. And so for those of us who are here today, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, uh, welcome. Uh, and I am right there with you. That certain Sundays, as we are in the presence of the Lord, we are in need of that reminder that Jesus had to die for us in order for us to be in his presence. I mean, if we can just take a moment and to think about that, we are so bad to the core that Jesus had to die for us. Let's take a moment to think about that. Because oftentimes we think about ourselves and we think, yeah, you know what, some self-help books might help me. You know, I just need a little bit more coaching. I need a little bit more mentorship. But in reality, Jesus died for us. Because there is no self-help book in the world that can make us right before God. And for those of us who are not in Christ Jesus, thank you so much for being here. Um, Thank you so much, especially if you've fallen away from the church and you've come back and you want to try this out again. I want you to know that this good news of Jesus Christ is equally for you as it is for the rest of us. And to start off this series... I want to go into a very famous uh, psalms, uh, Psalm 51. It's actually one of the more well-known psalms, and it's written by King David. If we can get the uh, PowerPoint slides up. So Psalm 51, and I'm going to title this sermon, Repentance That Sings. Repentance That Sings. You see, what repentance is, is it's not just, woe is me, this is all that I've done, I'm, a, I'm such a bad person, I start self-deprecating myself. In actuality, uh, that's not what repentance is. Repentance is turning away, turning away from our former life and going towards Jesus Christ. Yes, we are saying, this is what we have done, this is what we have thought, this is what we have felt, but whatever it is that we have thought done, and felt the love and mercy of Christ is greater, and that's why I can turn to him. So uh, let's move on. What is the context to Psalm 51? The the context to Psalm 51 is actually found in the title. Uh, If you have your Bibles open, you can see that there's a little title. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Just one couple of sentences, but there's a lot going on there. But the context is a very tragic one. You see, in the life of King David, 
especially in the very beginning phases of his uh, walk with the Lord, I mean, he was stellar. He was amazing. He did everything right. He was the golden boy, golden child. I mean, he was such a great leader, courageous, valiant. And yet, in the same person, someone who is so morally outstanding, uh, with high morals and everything else, you would have loved and respected him. And yet, in the same person, he can do these egregious, horrible things that we're going to talk about today. And in order to fully appreciate what Psalm 51 is all about, we're going to study a little bit about the context, which is 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. We have the slides back up. I'm going to read this. Listen carefully as a story. A true story, but story nevertheless. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And it says, So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. A lot's going on here. But let me just break it down for you. During a time called spring, in this particular time, kings would go out to battle. But... Instead of David going out into battle, he sends everybody else but him. And no reason is given. Maybe there was no good reason to write into the scriptures. Maybe David, as a king, thought, you know what? I'm going to rest on my laurels. I'm going to rest on all of my previous amazing accomplishments. I'm going to rest and I'm going to send all my other, you know, lesser people, all my servants. I'm going to send them out. And then they're going to fight my fights for me as I rest, whereas all the worldly kings are out there working. And then as he rests, verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. Then he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. When I was your age, I've heard pastors say, look how bad Bathsheba is. She's on the roof, um, and she's naked. And she is bathing. So she's a temptress. But if you notice in the scriptures, does it say that? It doesn't. It doesn't say that at all. She had no idea. It doesn't even say that she had any idea that David knew that, she, that he was watching. And another thing is, David should not have been watching. What David could have done is, oops, I see something that I shouldn't be seeing. I'm going to walk the other way. There is no mention of Bathsheba receiving any blame from the, from the scriptures. And I thought, and I just did some research, why is it that she was bathing up on her roof? 
it actually wasn't that uncommon, especially for women who were going through their menstrual cycle. They were up on the roof away from everybody else, and they were just, you know, washing themselves. And another thing, there's nothing wrong with being a... I will say that again. Sorry. Um, There is nothing wrong with being a beautiful woman or being a beautiful man. There's nothing inherently sinful about that. But what David does is he's enjoying himself as a king and he sends his servants. Now, if you notice, his servants are wise. And this was a warning from the servants and I ultimately believe a warning from God in verse 3, he said, the servant says, okay, we will go get her, but is not this Bathsheba? She's not just any random woman. She is a woman with incredible respect in her community. She is the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. These are people with names in the community. These are people held in high honor. You don't want to do this, but nevertheless... This is a monarchy. And when the king tells you to do something, you go and do it. And obviously for Bathsheba, she is a a woman in this society. She's not going to be able to um, challenge the king. When the king says, come before me, you're going to come before him. And so that's what he does. And he gets her to him. And what does David do? He violates her. Now, what is a, a, a woman to do at this point? She has no power. She has no strength. And so what Bathsheba does is tell him what she can. And she says, hey, by the way, you violated me. I'm pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. How is David going to cover this up? Well, he thinks. Instead of repenting, he thinks. And if we can get the slide up again. Starting in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, verses 6 to 13, we see uh, David thinking in his mind, thinking in his heart, uh, and so that he's trying to figure out how to get out of the situation. And he says, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Job sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. I mean, this guy is turning out to be a crummy dude. I mean, he just took his wife and he's just asking him, hey, how was your day? You doing okay? How was the war? Is everything going fine? Is everything going well? Not a pretty picture for David. Verse 8, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Why is David so concerned about Uriah going down to his house? Well, after, uh, you know, David gets Uriah, all this alcohol and everything else, hey, I want you to rest. Go to your home. And, I, and pretty much what David is saying, go, go, have fun with your wife. Sleep with her. And what is going on is, is that David's trying to cover up the pregnancy. And uh, Uriah, being such a good man, refuses. 
He says in verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And no matter what David would do, he could not budge Uriah. It's incredible. I mean, King David, with all of his high moral standards, was being bested by this man, Uriah the Hittite, because David has lost his way. So what is he going to do? Trickery doesn't work. And so in his madness, in his insanity, David comes with the idea of actually murdering Uriah. That's where sin gets. That's where sin leads to, ultimately. In our lostness, it looks cute at first. All he did was took a little look, and that look turned into inquiry. Hey, who is that woman over there? And that inquiry turned to get her for me. Get her for me turned into violating her. Violating her turned into tricking his husband, her husband. Tricking her husband turned into murdering her husband. And we learn that in one body, in all of us here today, as relatively as good as you, as you and I might be, the Bible is teaching all of us, male, female, boys, girls, man, woman, it doesn't matter. We all have the ability to be good and evil. It's all within one being. And so he actually thought that he got away with it. He doesn't even address the issue. He moves on after Uriah dies. But God saw everything. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 to 15, it says this, Nathan said to David, you are the man. See, God outs him, right? You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do this evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore... The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The punishment continues. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did, you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to the, David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. In the case of sexual assault, how God addresses this issue is quick and decisive. But 
unlike the world, uh, the world has absolutely no sense of justice. It has the absolute power of vengeance and revenge uh, against people. But you see in the scriptures that God addresses uh, the perpetrator. God addresses the perpetrator right away. And yet, in his holiness, there is mercy. And if you have a problem with God showing mercy to David, what about the problem of God showing mercy to you? You might think, hey, I didn't do what David did. I'm okay. I'm better than that. And you might be relatively better than David, and you might be relatively better than your friends. But here's the thing. In the presence of God, are we any better than the person to the left and to the right of us? For all sin leads to the same destination, death. And this is where we see in our passage, after Nathan leaves, most likely, David writes this psalms. And he begins by saying the one thing that he needs desperately. And this one thing is the one thing that you and I absolutely need desperately. And this is where there's so many emotions, so many biblical truths, so many wonderful promises that we can find in Jesus Christ. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. What is David asking for? He's asking for mercy. And I just Googled this. Uh, This is what mercy means. When you ask for mercy, this is what it means. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Okay, he's asking for compassion and for mercy. And you might be thinking in your heads, right? Are you out of your mind? You're the last person to deserve compassion and mercy for what you have done. It is over for you. And so what basis does David ask for this compassion and forgiveness? He doesn't say according to God's people's love, God's people's mercy. He doesn't say, oh, I I trust in accordance to the sacrificial system. No. He continues to talk to God. And he says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Because David understands couple of things, that God is love. God is love. Now, this is not uh, David saying, okay, I get a slap on the wrist. No, remember all of the, uh, the punishment that David is going to get from this holy, holy, holy God. No, there are consequences to sin. That's true. But for the child of God, and if that is you, if you are a child of God, steadfast love will never depart from you. Amen. There needs to be more amens. Amen? Amen. Steadfast love will never depart from you. So that's what he's basing his request upon. He knows that he did wrong. I'm going to show that he knows that in a little bit. But then he again uses the word mercy. According to what kind of mercy? His abundant mercy. Abundant. 
And this is the point, this is the point where, you know, it, it just breaks me. Because so many times for a lot of our students, and, and, and also, to be honest, with myself too, I, I, I feel like God's mercy has a limit to it. I know I would never preach that. I would never teach that because it's not biblical. It's wrong. But in our actions to God, in the way that we relate to God, we think that God's mercy is limited. And therefore, when we think that God's mercy is limited, what we try to do is what we pray together corporately. We try to behave better before God. We try to earn our place before God. We try to prove ourselves to ourselves and also to our neighbors that I'm not so bad. I'm okay. After all, what other choice do I have but to behave when God's mercy is limited? But that is not what King David says. He says, your abundant mercy, abundant mercy. Can we get the slides up? Listen to what it says here. And this is a truth that the Apostle Paul brings out. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, brothers and sisters, uh, what David is not saying here, he is not saying, okay, you know what? I did something wrong. I did something bad. Jesus, you're going to forgive me, right? And then he just moves on. He doesn't do that at all. He is saying, I know what I have done. I require rich mercy. I require great love because of my transgressions. Get the slide back up again. Transgression is this, an act that goes against a law, rule, or code of conduct, an offense. What David is saying is, God, I did all of this horrendous evil. I did all of these things fully knowing that it goes against your will. I broke your law. This is not the kind of prayer. Psalms 51 is not the kind of prayer that you and I pray for when we're at school for lunch. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for this food. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, and then you just move on. Oh, David has thought clearly about this, and he is not going to run away. He's going to take ownership of what he has done, not by behaving better, but by confessing. Let's move on to verse 2 to 3. It's, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. I mean, this is something that, you know, his own people are going to read. Psalm 51. All of God's people are going to read all of this. He's saying, wash me, not lightly, not just a little bit of water. No, wash me thoroughly for, from my iniquity. He said, my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. And I, I wonder, brothers and sisters, about our repentance. When we repent for our sins and we are confessing our sins before God, I really wonder if we are taking ownership of our sins or are we just saying, Lord, forgive them. 
you know, forgive them, it's, it's their problem, or Lord, I'm, I'm like this because I'm tired, or, you know, I, I have bad parents, or I, I have a bad teacher, or my friends influence me. And so we're blaming everybody else, everybody else but ourselves. But that's a tragedy. And here's why it's a tragedy. Because David, in his confession over what he has done, he is going to experience for himself the abundant mercy, the great love that God has for all of his people. And all throughout the scriptures, we see that God is a God who delights in showering you with love. He is a God who delights. He is genuinely happy to pour out his mercy upon you and lavish you upon his grace. And so, David says, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In the next three verses, King David is going to go super theological. And how many of you actually think, don't raise your hands, how many of you guys actually think that theology is kind of pointless? The study of God, study of God's word is pointless. No, he is going to go into a theological, like little, uh, uh, like, you know, uh, several verses of just theology, just rich theology. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. And for you and I, we might read that and we might go, wait a minute, what are you talking about, David? What do you mean you only sinned against God? What about uh, Bathsheba? What about Uriah? Oh, not to mention you are a king, and so you've embarrassed your people. You have a lot of people to apologize to. What do you mean against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? And what David is saying is this. At the end of his life, he's not saying that he didn't sin against these people in his nation. He's saying that at the end of his life, he is going to be in the presence of God. And he is going to be held accountable for what he has done. What he has done. So, he goes on in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And what David is saying here is this, brothers and sisters. He's not saying, hey, <clears throat> I committed adultery because my mother conceived me. So my mother was an adulterer, and that's why I am an adulterer. That's not what he's saying. Again, he's being richly theological. He's saying uh, to you and to me, to himself, to God, that we are born into this world inheriting Adam's sin. Adam is the first man. In fact, his name actually means man, mankind, and he represents humanity. And if you think that you could do better than Adam, just know that Adam had no sin at the point, and even though he had no sin, he still fell. He was the best of us, and he still fell, plunging humanity under the bondage of sin. He's not excusing himself, but he's realizing that it's not education. It's not money. He had a lot of money. 
It's not a money issue. That's not why he did this. It's not because he's bored. It's because of sin in his life, sin in all of our lives, where we find ourselves completely lost. And then he goes on into verse 6. He says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You notice that? What is David saying? God, I don't blame you. I don't blame you either. So many times you and I might blame God, but David says here, no, 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 no. God, you are a God of truth. You taught me truth. I knew that committing adultery, committing murder is wrong. I knew uh, that uh, beyond uh, adultery, sexual assault is wrong. I, I, I knew that that was wrong, right? That was bad. I, 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 it's not like he woke up and he goes, oh, God, I didn't know that that was wrong. No, he knew exactly what he was doing. And so, God, I don't blame you. This is not of you. This is from my own sins. Listen to what it says in Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam, like Paul, is saying, this is all my fault. It's my fault. I'm not blaming anybody here. David refuses to blame God for the situation that he's in. For God delights in truth and teaches us wisdom. I'm going to pause here. We're going to continue this sermon next week. But I'm going to pause here and kind of draw your attention to the beauty of what's going on in Psalm 51. How many of you want to know a God like this, where you can go to God and confess your heart out and know that he will respond to you with abundant love, abundant mercy? It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you won't face consequences for your sins. Facing consequences is also an act of God's mercy. Without consequences, I don't know oftentimes that what I have done is bad, right? Because we live and breathe sin so much that we are not even aware of it. And so by God's mercy, out of his mercy and love, he sends us consequences. Now, I'm not judging people who smoke, uh, but I have a friend who smokes. And uh, one of the things that uh, surprises me is that when I get into his car, um, smoke cigarettes, uh, and so when I get into his car, his car smells like cigarettes. Um, and he tries to cover it with like, you know, the, you know, the air fresheners and whatever. But I can still smell it because I'm not a smoker and so I'm a little bit more sensitive to that. But my friend, uh, he can't tell. He can't tell. I remember telling him, oh my goodness, dude, your car reeks of cigarettes. And he would be like, what are you talking about? No, I cleaned out everything. And it's true. It was clean. His car was spotless. And yet there was a smell. And that taught me something. He wasn't aware. He wasn't aware. And so many of us today are unaware of how sinful you and I are. But the tragedy is not just that we are unaware of our sins. The tragedy, brothers and sisters, 
is that we are unaware of God's love and mercy over your life. Even with the consequences, I'd rather be in the arms of my heavenly Father who is perfect in all of his ways. He is righteous and just, but merciful and loving. He knows best, and he is the one that I would rather be with and be in than in the world. I completely understand why so many of us are so afraid to confess our sins to God, let alone one another. I think one of the reasons why is this, is that we don't know a God like our God, the God of the Bible. We still have the fear of man. I can't be judged by people. They can never know. And so we hide and hide and hide, just like Adam and Eve did. And as we hide, our sins grow. They build strongholds in our hearts. But there is only one way to break the strongholds of our hearts. And for Joshua Generation, we just came back from a retreat called Jericho Falls, where we talked about how in all of our hearts, there are walls surrounding it. And we can try and try and try. We can pretty up the wall. We can try to cover the wall. We can try to attack the wall. But only through knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, going before him and saying, Lord, Father, I messed up. I've sinned. I made this life all about me. I made my dreams all about me. I've fallen into sin and I I just can't get out. I'm addicted to this and I'm addicted to that. I need you. For the one who goes to God in this humble and contrite spirit, as we will learn next week, there is eternal hope for you. Amen? Would you bow your heads in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, um, oftentimes we forget how far we have come, how far we have come away from you. We try to hide, just like David did, covering our tracks, maybe even ignoring the gravity of our sins. Maybe Maybe we try to just move on, forget about it. But Lord, you are perfectly holy and just. There is no sin that escapes your eyes. Even the thoughts of our hearts are known before you. And yet, Lord, though we should be trembling in fear and terror because of your holiness, you lovingly and mercifully call your children, do not Be afraid. Draw near, draw near, draw near. I pray, Lord, for all stars and Joshua generation that we will get to know you in this real and raw way, not in some fake and phony way, not not trying to be like this well-polished Christian, but, Lord, a genuine son and daughter that has been bought, not with silver or gold, but with the very blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.